0: I'm Dr. John Nixon, Sr., and this is a special edition of Hear Me Now, the Preaching Podcast. If it's your first time with us, welcome. If you're coming back, then welcome back. I'm postponing my continuation of our sermon on John 3.16 to address yesterday's events at the Capitol. It's not a political commentary. True to the title of this podcast, this is about how to approach the topic in the pulpit in a way that will exalt Christ and advance the kingdom of God. My conviction is, I'm sure you share it, that when these kinds of events take place, so attention-getting, worldwide, earth-shattering, the pulpit has to speak to those events and to do so quickly, otherwise we're showing that we're not really relevant, we're not in touch with the real world. So, these events require a response from the pulpit from God's preachers, from His Word. There's a strong temptation to use the pulpit at a time like this to vent our frustrations against the highly visible, unmistakable, and very ugly injustices that we've endured over the last several years. As leaders in our areas, many preachers have been standing with community leaders to protest, to to work toward improvement, to help assist and defend those who are being victimized. That's our community role. My argument is that the pulpit is something different. It is not a political stand. It's not a place to make political positions and stands. The pulpit is the place for spiritual insight. It's the place where we look into world events from a spiritual perspective to reach human hearts for the sake of salvation. We have to resist using the sacred desk the way a politician uses a platform to advance a political agenda, however just the agenda might be. Now, I'm not saying we should close our eyes or turn our heads. That's not our role, that's not what Jesus would do. We see what's going on in the world and the mission of Christ in the earth confronts it. God is clearly on the side of justice, against injustice, against impression, And he will have the last word in the earth. But while Jesus was here, he stood up for what was right. He confronted injustice. He defended those who were being victimized. That is our role as spiritual leaders here in the earth. But there's something more for us to reveal in the word of God that believers cannot get anywhere else. Not from their politicians. Not from political commentary. Not from the newscasters or pundits. We have a unique role in the community, the worldwide community and especially the church community. We step back and look upward at world events. We see further than Fox and CNN, we see things they cannot see because they have a different agenda. So When people come to church, they don't need more political commentary from us. They need a thus saith the Lord. What would God have us learn from the events of the capital and the things leading up to it. Remember, commit to, surrender to, be inspired by, be encouraged by, in the light of yesterday's events. That's the burden of the Christian pulpit. What is God up to? What do these things mean in his eyes? Because he has a view, he has an involvement that is high above and far beyond what we can see without his spirit guiding us. What do these things mean for our spiritual lives as believers? What do they mean for Christ's mission in the earth? What do they portend in terms of the end of the world? If the people don't hear this from us, they may not hear it at all. And they won't know how to think of events currently through a spiritual lens because we have not taught them how to view it. That's the task of the pulpit. That's what I want to help us do this weekend especially on such short notice you know i pastored 34 years and i know how busy pastoring life can be our ideal would be to spend such and such amount of time in sermon preparation but so often we don't really have that kind of time between church responsibilities and family responsibilities so i'm trying now to do my little bit to help pastors along the way to give a little assistance as we think through the things god would have us to say in his pulpit. And I have some ideas to share with you this afternoon. Some that I think could be developed in different ways perhaps into two or three different sermons depending on how you feel led. I don't have a finished product to post. Not this time. In fact, I'm still getting my website together. Everything's coming out of my pocket, so it's moving slowly. Let's call this then, let's call it Sermon Helps. Sermon helps to help you get going or to add to what you already have, if you find it useful. I texted with an old, my old teaching partner yesterday. We texted back and forth while all this stuff was going on, and I've included some of his thoughts and what I want to share with you today. I want to choose a main text, and out of that text, you're going to find other texts being brought in and other ideas going off from this text that could themselves be developed into full sermons. I'll focus on this one text, but as you listen, you might be led to other things that the Spirit is telling you as relevant and needed in your context for this weekend, I pray. I'm going to use John 18, verses 28 to 36. <clears throat> me. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. That's ironic. They didn't want to, They wouldn't want to violate the Passover, but here they were getting ready to murder the Passover lamb. But let's, let's leave that. Continuing, so Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they shouted, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourself." and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, this is the key text. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now, my kingdom is from another place. Let's look at it. Pick out a couple of verses. I didn't have time to do a thorough investigation. As you know, all this just happened yesterday, but let's look at it and see what we can find. Now, the first sentence in verse 28 of this passage tells us something. The Jewish leaders are transitioning the custodianship of Jesus from the church to the state. The church arrested him. The church took him to the head of the church, the high priest, they examined him, they did what they wanted with him, and now the church is handing him over to the state, from Caiaphas to Pilate, from the high priest to the governor. So we see what's happening right there. We know we know both in Old Testament and in prophecy what happens when these two powers get together. The church and the state, Christ caught in the middle. In verses 29 to 31 going on, these two entities have a tug and war over Christ. Pilate says to them, what charges are you bringing against this man? They say, if he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't wouldn't bring him to you. Pilate said, judge him by your own laws. They said, we have no right to execute. In other words, we need you to kill him. That's what they were basically saying. But whenever we see the church, historically, biblically, whatever, whenever we see the church run to the state to use its power and authority, it's because the church has become weak and corrupt. And that's what's happened to the church of the first century. And it's always it always ends in persecution. The church goes to the state to borrow its power because they have no spiritual power of their own. It's a sign of the church's weakness and corruption that we run to the state for their power. And that's what we see happening right here. We saw it yesterday. Did you notice? There were raised Bibles and Christian banners in the Capitol building yesterday while it was being taken by force right alongside swastikas and confederate flags. Not only are the church and state not separate in our day, they have become one and the same. The church corrupted. The church weak. And therefore, running to the state for its power there's been an unholy union between church and state in america born out of corruption and we should take no part in it now let me let me pause here for a moment because our church may not have been in the Capitol yesterday but there are other ways in which the church compromises its spirituality by running to the state for power because the church is lacking in power There's something we can examine even in our own churches. We should have no part in this unholy mingling of church and state for the purpose of persecution. And that's what we see happening right here. Now comes the exchange that I think is really full of meaning for this current hour as we think about what all this means in Christ. The story comes down to a private conversation between Jesus and Pilate. Here's where the drama comes in. The Bible lets us in on their conversation. Verses 33 to 36. The Bible says, Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, where did Pilate get that from? That's not what the priest told him when they handed him over. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus asked, Is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? See, Jesus is never concerned with politics. He sees that Pilate is under conviction. Jesus is always in salvation mode. He knows he's got a chance right here because Pilate has opened up with a spiritual question. Are you king of the Jews? He didn't mean earthly king because he knows that can't be the case. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, is that your own idea? Christ is fishing for a soul now. Pilate has an opportunity, but he doesn't take it. Am I a Jew? He replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Pilate's reply shows that he's under conviction. It's an angry reply. He's on the defensive. He's resisting. He's hardening his heart. He's alone with Jesus in this chamber, door closed. This is his big chance. But he gets defensive. He doesn't approach. He pushes back. Now Jesus gives this final sentence in this passage that I think we can explore for the benefit of our people and for the kingdom. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Here is the profound statement of Jesus, beyond the then and there of the moment, that has universal implications. My kingdom, the Son of God says, is from another place. What does that say to us in the current political crisis? How do we balance our witness and responsibilities as believers in the community, our activity in this world, for which Jesus died, John 3.16, How do we balance that with our citizenship in another world for which Jesus resurrected and went ahead to prepare a place for us, John 14, 2, and 3? Remember, Jesus is balanced. Both these realities appear in Jesus Christ. He died for the world. He went to prepare a place for those who belong to his kingdom. How do we balance them? How do we understand what's going on in this moment But now, let's try to think more broadly, beyond the meaning of the moment, thinking of its meaning in the wider context of this, hear me now, the great controversy between Christ and Satan. That's the lens I want to lead us to, to view this whole thing and get a deeper spiritual perspective. On the human level, The battle appears to be between opposing political agendas. But cosmically, through the eyes of faith, we see the greater battle between two opposing kingdoms. Biblically speaking, Democrats and Republicans are on the same side. They're part of the fallen kingdoms of this world, which are all passing away. They think they're on different sides. But we know in the Great Controversy, there really are only two sides the one from this world, and the one from the world to come. In the great controversy, the battle we see going on is an earthly battle between two earthly powers, political powers, not belonging to the kingdom that Christ says he is He is from, but the kingdom that he says he's not of, the kingdom of this world. The kingdom's passing away. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, bringing in some other verses now. And actually, some of these verses could be the starting point for a sermon themselves. Look at this one, 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So... We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Notice the Bible does not say we close our eyes to the seen. The Bible says we fix our eyes on the unseen. We don't not see. We just don't let it be our focus. Our focus is on what is to come while we see what is because what is is passing away and what is coming is eternal i think there's a word there the question is where is our focus and where do our ultimate hopes lie that's the question of second corinthians 4:16 to 18. that passage right there could be used to address yesterday's events And help God's people take a spiritual view to them. Not just a political view. That's what I'm arguing. There's a companion text here too. When we talk about this uh, Christ telling Pilate that I'm not of this world. I'm, I'm of another world. There's a companion text we can use where Jesus said a similar thing in a different place. Actually on the same night in Gethsemane. In Matthew 26 verses 50 to 54. Christ made a similar claim that he made to Pilate. Here's how it reads. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put a disposal of more than 12 angel legions of angels? But then, how would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Mm, let's unpack that for a minute. Let's unpack that. This is another important place where Jesus makes the distinction between his kingdom and the kingdoms of the earth. This is the parallel to My kingdom is not of this world. The statement he made to Pilate. His live by the sword, die by the sword, is in opposition to let prophecy be fulfilled. One is earthly, the other is spiritual. The question is, by which kingdom do we define ourselves? Not live in. I'm not even saying belong to. I'm saying define ourselves. It's a question of identity. We say we're Christians, but that concept includes identity, not just religious belief. Christianity is a new identity. Everything is new. So in the light of these political events, it's time for us to ask ourselves a question. I see them, but is it my focus? I understand them, but is it the center of my life? How do I define myself by the things of this kingdom or the things of the kingdom that is to come? The Bible says everything is new in Jesus Christ. Everything. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's King James, New King James Version. The NIV says the old has gone and the new is here. There are two kingdoms. That's clear. They're at odds with each other. That's also clear. Jesus is squarely located in one And denies that he belongs to the other. That too is clear. Remember John 12, 31? Jesus said. One of the statements he made. While he was in his ministry. He said now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world. Will be driven out. When Jesus said the prince of the world. This world he was not talking about himself. As long as sin reigns. This world is under the jurisdiction of Satan. He's the prince of this fallen world. Pilate was under that jurisdiction and the Jewish leaders were playing into his hands. The question is, are we under that jurisdiction too? Or do we operate in this world as those who are from another world? Do we bear responsibility here based on the mission of Christ or based on an earthly agenda? Like Jesus was, are we in this world, but not of this world? Are we passing through, or are we patriots? I'll come back to that in a minute. That's a loaded word. Take a minute with that. Let me tell you something, a little illustration here. One of my friends and colleagues, some of you know him, the late Dr. Russell C., wrote his dissertation on the work of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. He was discussing it once in a meeting of professors I was present. And he talked about what he discovered about why Dr. King used the nonviolent method. We know some of the reasons, but there was another here that Russell C. told us about. He said Dr. King's philosophy was that the nonviolent uh, method accomplished two things, not just one. The empowerment of the oppressed. Finally, a chance to stand up, be heard, You know, be men, be women, not to be, be objects. A chance for the oppressed to be heard, to be empowered. But at the same time, he said... The redemption of the oppressor. Because when the oppressor can see himself, herself, in the light of their deeds is a chance for them to be redeemed. Now that's a different worldview. That's a spiritual agenda on political events. The question for you, for me, for our congregations, what is your identity? Where does your citizenship lie? Because the answer to that question will determine how you relate to this moment in time. When Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, I'm going to make a comparison now. He was not advocating insurrection. He himself didn't come into the world as a revolutionary trying to overturn the Roman government. That's not what he meant. He's not calling his fathers, his followers to overthrow the government now. How do we know? Because of Christ's statements and because of the Bible's teaching elsewhere. Let me do this now. I want to make a comparison now between citizenship and patriotism. All this is relevant, I believe, to what's going on right now in our country. Christians need to think it through. Let me develop this idea. Here's Mark 12, 13 to 17. And by the way, I believe this could be the start. It. This could be the main text of a sermon also that'd be relevant for this moment in time. You might want to approach and develop this one. It's a short test. already Thursday, but if you work at it, the Holy Spirit can get you ready, even with the text, you start now. Everything I'm sharing with you now, I did last night. <laughs> okay. Mark 12, 13 through 17. Then they sent him to some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they, when they had come, they said to him, Teacher... We know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Bunch of flattery there. That probably put Christ on his guard. Anyway, going on. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Now, they asked the question based on insincere motives. But we can ask the same question with sincere motives. What does Jesus think about how we should relate to Caesar, the heads of the world government? Here's Christ's answer. He, knowing the hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Another proof. One sentence. Jesus is powerful. One sentence. And he introduces ideas of depth that we could take days, weeks, months just thinking about. Christ answers their question. They didn't expect this answer. Render to Caesar the things that are uh, Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. So, I say, this statement from Christ explores the difference between citizenship and patriotism. Let me develop it. I'm talking now about the worldview of the Christian who is in this world, but knows they are not of this world. I'm saying citizenship and patriotism are two different kinds of relationships to our responsibilities in this world as those who belong to another world. The Bible advocates good citizenship. Jesus was endorsing it when he said, render to Caesar. In other places, the Bible says to obey the governing authorities, Romans 13. As citizens who benefit from the state, it's honest and fair for us to fulfill our obligations to the state. Pay taxes. Obey the laws. If you get caught speeding, pay the citation. There are other civic duties as well. Jesus goes on, unto God the things that are God's. Now the entire discourse is elevated. If he stopped at Caesar, that'd be one thing. But now Jesus adds, render also to God the things that are God's. We are in this world. We have responsibilities here. My taxes pave the roads and build bridges and buildings. But also, I know that all the bridges and buildings are coming down. Demolished in the second coming of Christ, this world is passing away. So, also, and more importantly, render to God the things that are God. We owe him much, much more. Our souls, which we cannot pay for with taxes. The tax has been paid. Paid in full. Caesar's imprint is on the coin. God's imprint is on our souls by the cross. Give Caesar what's his. Don't hold back from God what is his. Our obedience, our citizenship, our loyalty, our responsibilities belong to the state on that level. But our souls, our identity belongs only to God by the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why I say citizenship and patriotism are not the same thing. A patriot, patriotism is a political ideology. Ide- ideology means a set of beliefs, you know, not just ideas, but ideals and ideology. Now, in its simplest form, a patriot is simply a person who loves their country. But as an ideology and an actual practice, it means more than that. It also goes to issues of identity, identification with one's country to the personal level. Of self-identity. So my country becomes my identity. For a Christian, this creates a crisis of identity. Because you only have one identity. If you have two, then one of them is a disguise. It's only one true identity per person. But the real challenge of patriotism for believers is this. When it comes to questions of right and wrong, patriotism gives moral authority to the state. Not just civic authority pay your taxes, obey the governing authorities, but also moral authority, my country right or wrong. That's patriotism. Which often means I deny when my country is wrong because I always want to follow it and convince myself that it's right. In this form of extreme patriotism, one follows blindly wherever their political leaders lead. Christians have to search their hearts about that. When we understand right and wrong to be universal principles based on God's law, how can any Christian say, my country, right or wrong? Really? Above God's right or wrong? The only country that deserves our unswerving loyalty at all times is what Hebrews 11:6 calls the better country. It says, instead, they were all longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By the way, I think there's a sermon right there too in Hebrews 11. I was thinking about this last night. I didn't have time to develop it, but think about this. Again, looking at world events yesterday, what happened in the capital, thinking about the message of the Bible, think about this for a minute. Hebrews 11, go back to Genesis 12. God calls Abraham, tells him he's got a, a, a country for him. Get up, leave your family, disconnect, go to this place I'm going to tell you about. Abraham goes. God is challenging Abraham, hear me now, God is challenging Abraham to disconnect from his worldly connections and take a trip with him, not knowing where he's going, and reattach to God's connections. Abraham goes, goes to the place he's told to go to, has a son, has a grandson. Abraham dies, Abraham's son dies, Abraham's grandson dies. They never even own an acre of the land God sent them to possess. What's going on then? How did he go? Why did he stay? Hebrews 11 tells why. It says he was looking for another country that had foundations whose builder and maker was God. In other words, Abraham had a goal for this world that God gave him, but that wasn't his real goal. He was looking for another country. He died in peace because he knew he was going to see the real country God sent him to possess. There's a story there between two kingdoms, right there. A good story for believers to think about. This is an opportune time for us to bring believers to evaluate these questions in their own lives. They may not have thought it through all the way. Here's a chance to help them do so. And These verses that I've shared just now. Now, let me take a minute talk about a couple of other ways to approach this that I have not had time to develop, but that came to my mind. I was up pretty late last night and early this morning. I'm going to nap when this is over. Anyway, I'm I'm going off, off topic here. But here's another approach. Think about this for a minute. When you approach what happened yesterday from the standpoint of the great controversy between Christ and Satan, and as I was saying, every earthly conflict is just a reflection of the bigger conflict that engulfs the whole universe, the great controversy between Christ and Satan. When I see a conflict down here, it's just a smaller manifestation of that great conflict. I keep my eyes on the great conflict to know what God is up to. If I get distracted by the small conflict, I get entangled in the things of the world. And I lose my focus. We fix our eyes. What did the Bible say? We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. When I see the conflict here, I'm looking at the greater conflict in order to understand it. Now, with that perspective, I could also preach Sabbath from Genesis 3. Follow my thinking now. The great controversy actually begins in heaven, said the book of Revelation. Satan's cast out, and he brings the controversy here. The first engagement with the enemy comes at the forbidden tree in Genesis chapter 3. Here's where the controversy comes to earth. The serpent and the woman standing at that tree. The battle in the capital yesterday, as well as the violence and hatred that led up to it, had its origin right there at the forbidden tree, because that's where the fight came to earth. That's how we got engulfed in it. Look at how the enemy then usurped the authority of Adam, took this world, became the prince of this world in place of Adam. With his first conquest in the controversy, he started with a question That suggested our friend was actually our secret enemy, while all along concealing that he himself was the real enemy. That's what happened at the tree. The serpent tricked the woman into thinking that her creator was her enemy, hiding things from her, while he was her friend, trying to bring her into the light. He engaged us in the controversy from the beginning with deception, a sleight of hand. He still uses that same method. We should be on the watch for it. So now I can take that that story from Genesis 3, lighted the great controversy, and I can develop it. Maybe I'll go back, just thinking top of my head, maybe I'll go back and I'll tell a backstory leading up to the tree. I don't know, I don't know how far back. Maybe I'll go back to the creation of the woman and the man and talk about how they came from the wor- uh, from the ground. and She came from his rib. and you know They were one with God. They had the garden. They're walking around. You know, just to kind of get the momentum going in the story, get the people listening, get them to immerse themselves in it, and then bring the story to that critical point in Genesis 3.1 where the woman is confronted by the serpent. Now, when I get to this point, I start unpacking the spiritual meaning. What's going on in that tree? What's really going on? Something important to notice. I mentioned earlier... The serpent started the controversy by making us think our friend was actually our enemy. He still does that. He puts the blame on God for evil and tries to turn us against God as though he were the origin of evil. He still uses that same method. But also, think about this. He not only got the woman to think that God was the enemy, but also, this is important, he got her to evaluate things from the standpoint of her own personal interest. He got her to look inward. He said, did God say you can't have? Then he said, God is keeping something from you. You will not surely die. He got her to look inward and think about her own interest, which led to her fall. Instead of thinking, she sort have of thought, well, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute now. This doesn't sound right. God didn't say this to me. Instead, she was thinking, hmm, maybe that tree's okay after all. He got her to think about herself first and that's what led to her downfall. There's a principle, biblical principle that we can unpack to our people that will help them in the journey of sanctification. Here's a moment to show how the great controversy also involves this worldview of who is at the center? Myself or my God? So, We can go from Genesis 3. Try to develop that. You know the methods. Look at the text. Listen to it. May not be able to take all day to listen to it because it's such a short week now. But then compare it with other commentaries, books, inspirational books. Get thoughts. Get ideas. Organize it coherently. Put it together. Make sure Christ is at the center of meaning. Bring it to God's people this weekend. Okay. Let me... uh, let me look at one more here. Another text that I was looking at, I didn't really have time uh, to develop, but I want to share with you because it may lead to something that you can develop for uh, this weekend. Where am I? Oh, here, here I am. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay. When the Bible says in the opening verse we were just reading of how this happens, so a prophecy would be fulfilled that is, Christ being arrested. Allowing himself to be taken. This happens a prophecy can be fulfilled. My index there points me to Matthew twenty, eighteen, and 19. Here's the prophecy that was being fulfilled. It had just happened. It was Christ's prophecy. He said there, We're going up to Jerusalem. The son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. Hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Now that's interesting. Before it happened, Christ predicted just how it would happen, and it happened just that way. It started with the religious leaders arresting him, then they handing him over to the civic leader, the governor, and then Jesus said they, the civic leaders, would be the ones that mock him and flog him and crucify him. That's the pattern Jesus explained about his life death, which, of course, ended in his resurrection, praise the Lord. It's the same pattern that we see in Revelation of how the final conflict will take place with the church joining hands with the state, ending in persecution for God's people. There's something there we can tie together if we take the time. Something consistent with what happened yesterday in the Capitol to make God's people take a wider view And look beyond just the news and society and politics and all those issues and think about it in a spiritual way. So that when we leave the house of God this weekend, we're thinking to ourselves not about what CNN said or what Fox News said. We're thinking about what the word of God said. And we're thinking about our own lives and how we relate to God's kingdom for such a time as this. Because if one thing is certain, what happened yesterday is an indication of where we are in this world. You can say what you want. It's action that shows what's really going on in this country. What happened yesterday is an indication of where we are in this world. And now more than ever, believers need to need to evaluate where am I in relationship to this world and the world to come? All of my focus and attention down here, all my dreams connected to what's happening here, or, as the Bible says, do I have my eyes fixed on what is unseen? While I'm seeing the scene, I'm not fixed on the scene. I'm fixed on the unseen. Why, the Bible says? Because the scene is passing away. It's temporary. The unseen is coming into its own. It's eternal. That's why I want my focus, my identity, my life to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Well, that's all I have for this time. I <laughs> wish I had more for you. But, you know, it was a short time. I hope something here that you heard today would help you. Maybe be a springboard for something you want to preach. Or maybe something to assist or help what you've already started working on. Maybe the Lord had you working on this the beginning of the week because he saw all this coming. But hopefully it'll be some use to somebody. And I pray that will be the case. Until next time. Next time, we'll come back. We'll complete our work on John 3.16 as I promised. And then I pray that until then, the Lord will be with you. Bless us, guide us, be with you this weekend as you preach His Word. May the Holy Spirit be upon you. And may God's people be drawn closer to Him as a result. Until next time, remember, keep humble, be faithful.